0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven stories you're about to hear were told live at Koenigsheete Northern Light United Church on October 11th, 2022. Co hosts for the evening were Jeffrey Smith and David Noon. October's theme was Things That Go Bump in the Night. For the first time, the profit recipient was Mudrooms. Live music was performed by Tom Loker. Enjoy the show.
1: So uh, I'm going to introduce our first storyteller. Hedad uh, Gandu'u, Lillian Peterson, or Pe- Peter Shore rather, I already goofed that up, sorry Lillian. Uh, Yan Yehdi from the Taku Kwan, Lillian was born in the government hospital near the Juno Indian village uh, where she grew up hearing stories of the First Presbyterian Church and Memorial Church. Lillian wrote this story with heartfelt admiration for Dr. Soboleff uh, and in recognition of this church's journey in addressing past wrongs, Lillian performed on Yat Khu Sadi, noble people, Sani, noble people of the land, and she co-produced Juno Voices with Ryan Conroe. Lillian asked that we warn you that some of the details in this story involve historical trauma and may cause discomfort for some. While researching and documenting the history of the memorial church, she and the team that she co-led uncovered some hard truths. The Overture subcommittee moved beyond their pain to inquiry to build a case for addressing the wrongful closure of the church. A friend recently... Uh, shared with her that turning discomfort into inquiry can be a healthy way to move beyond the pain and discomfort. So welcome to gandu
2: Good evening. Chish Dave. It's 1962. Standing alone before his congregation, Pastor Walter Sobolev announces the closure of the Memorial Church. Silence from the Alaska Presbytery and the National Board of Missions. No words of remorse, no explanation from the Presbyterian officials. They are absent. Just an abrupt closure. Days later, the local newspaper announces that Walter Sobolev has accepted the job as minister at large, traveling to the villages and the logging camps. Members of the Memorial Church are in shock that their church will be no more. Already, they are missing their pastors comforting voice, the sermons that are in part delivered in Clinkett, the welcoming environment of the Memorial Church, the activities that affirm their belongingness, all of these eased the stresses of living in a community where many felt the sting of racism. Months earlier, Racism manifesting itself with the burning of the Douglas Indian Village and the taking of the beachfront of the Juneau Indian Village by the government. The closure reverberates as people in the villages are asking, why is our beloved leader, Walter Sobolev, so ill-treated? Silence from this faithful man of God who tells his family, We will not protest. Who, in a moment of vulnerability, shares with his nephew that this is the greatest hurt of his life. Who is passed over for the position of pastor by the new Northern Light Church. Decades later, June Dagnan urges the Native Ministries Committee, to find out what really led to that closure. Native Ministries finances Pastor Phil Campbell's trip to Philadelphia to look at church records, and they recruit reporter Jocelyn Estes to interview Memorial members. Jocelyn writes an article, Segregation of Faith. It is published by First Alaskans. The article is released at AFN and goes statewide. The article asks questions linking the forced closure of Memorial to this Northern Light Church. Pastor Faith McClellan suggests to Native Ministries that they write an overture. She arranges a meeting with the presbytery leader. He explains that an overture is essentially a resolution, and he outlines the different steps that the overture must go through in the Presbyterian hierarchy. With his enthusiastic support, Native Ministries decides to pursue this. Council moderator Tim Lash begins a council meeting with great resolve. He says, We must go down on the right side of history. Moments later, the Council votes yes to support Native Ministries. Native Ministries creates an Overture Subcommittee. Each of us volunteer countless hours to research, discuss, and write the Overture on the wrongful closure of the Memorial Church to support Consideration of this overture, Pastor Faith delivers a sermon, Hypocrisy Not Accepted. She delivers this to the regional presbytery and to the congregation at Northern Light. She asks, What has the Lord laid upon our hearts that we are reluctant to take up? Her core message If any of us are to stand against any form of injustice, we must first look at ourselves, at our complicity, at our silence. In doing this, we will begin to see how white supremacy and white privilege plays out. She also says that we are to listen to the voices of the Alaska Natives and to acknowledge the pain of those most impacted. The congregation votes on the overture. They decide to accept it and to move it through the presbytery hierarchy all the way to the National General Assembly this past June. And that body adopts the overture unanimously. Northern Light Church, creates a healing task force to begin the work of reparations. They recommend that Northern Light adopt a new name in Clinkett. As Mark Bonda explains, by the church accepting a clinkett place name, the church will be giving back, truly giving back to those who have lost so much. It is a great act of respect. Members of the congregation put forward ideas, many of them relating to healing. Native Ministries Committee, with the help of two language advisors, advance a name which the congregation adopts, Kuneich Hiti, Northern Light United Church, with Kuneh meaning healing and hidi meaning house or place of. The new name is not the end of the story. For the church, the regional presbytery, and the national church are all pursuing acts of reparation stemming from this overture. By listening, by moving beyond and listening, ending the silence, This congregation is responding to those who were most impacted by the closure of the Memorial Church. Thank you.
3: Next up, Chris Hinckley, known by many as the cousin of Tana Peters, was born and raised in Juneau. He has the habit of saying yes to most things, for better or worse, like helping me buy cars or welding things. Thanks, Chris. As part of a group of young Junoites, he traveled down the West Coast of the Americas via kayak and bicycle starting in 2012. Tonight, he will be sharing a story from those travels. Please welcome Chris.
4: fires were burning on either side of the road as we pedaled by. Uh, we were in an agricultural area in southern Mexico. Uh, Max, Kanan, Andrew, and I, uh, good friends. We grew up together in Juneau, and we'd been traveling at this point for about nine months, um, starting in kayaks, and now we're on bicycles. And most of our trip had been uh, pretty mellow to this point, believe it or not. A lot of reading books, a lot of playing cards, uh, learning to speak Spanish, finding places to sleep at night. And this day was not quite as mellow because we had a place to be for the first time in a long time. Canaan had suggested that we attend a rainbow gathering. None of us knew what a rainbow gathering was, uh, but it just happened to be taking place about 20 miles down the road. And we said, of course, why not? Yes, we'll go check this out. So I remember getting a little bit lost, but um, we, we found our way to this, to this place. We were in this agricultural area, and as I said, there were some fires burning. It seemed like maybe they were clearing, clearing the land or something, and we came through these agricultural areas, and it's pretty arid and made our way out towards the ocean. And all of a sudden, we were in this lush, beautiful uh, palm tree forest with a white sand beach and waves crashing. It was really paradise. And we got there in the evening, and we set up our, our tents in this kind of tent village that had been erected in the within the palm trees. And we went out, and we kind of got an idea of what this rainbow gathering is all about. And I was trying to think of how best to describe this place, and the word hippie definitely kept coming up. Um, I mean that in the, in the best sense of the word. Um, there was a lot of sharing, and love, and dreadlocks, and bongo drums, drum circles, things like that. And we were very hungry. And of course, we got there at mealtime. We were pretty good at arriving at places at mealtime. And um, I remember this uh, two people going around and they were serving food out of this giant like 20 gallon steel pot. And everyone was raising their bowls up to the pot and they ladled this slop into everyone's pot. And we said, gracias, gracias, we're very hungry. And I think we were just eyeing it, hoping we'd get seconds, but I don't know if that happened or not. Anyway, it was this kind of interesting scene. There were lots of people hanging out, love and peace and everyone was talking and learning from each other. And it it was a really interesting place. We were super tired. We decided we were gonna, we were gonna hit, the, hit the tent and we'd learn more about what this was all about in the morning. And the next thing I remember is being shook in the night, or bumped, I guess, uh, by my tent mate and, and good friend Andrew. And he's shaking me, he says, we gotta get up. And that was pretty normal. I'm not very good in the mornings. And I say, yeah, 15 minutes, man, I'm, I'm sleeping here. And then he shook me hard. And he said, we got to get up. It's a little bit of a different tone in his voice. And the next thing I know, the door of the tent is parting. And I can see nothing but flame. And I can feel the heat. And I immediately am like, oh boy, we better do something here. So I get out of the tent, and the entire palm tree forest is ablaze. Probably 50, 80 foot tall flames and we frantically pack up all our belongings, and we have these bicycles with us with saddle bags on either side of the tires. So we're throwing all of our belongings in and scrambling, and we're pushing our bikes through this maze of tents and bongo drums and people tripping and freaking out. And we, we get out to the beach away from the forest, and the wind is blowing so hard. And sand, you like you can't open your eyes at all, sand is like, cutting into your face. And we realized that, of course, we all have snorkel masks. We've been <laughs> snorkeling a lot. So we, we put on our snorkel masks, and we all, oh, I also forgot to mention, we all have these giant beards. It was a really poor bet that we chose to take. And um, so we have our snorkel masks on, and our bicycles full of all of our things, and we race out to this area away from the fire. So we, we're in safety, and then we kind of, like, look at each other, and we realize, and, and Andrew, who is a very gracious and helpful and just a wonderful guy, he kind of, I think, points out, hey, we're, we're, like, really equipped to, like, help people out right now. Uh, and we kind of look at the scene, and, you know, there's the people with their bongo drums and guitars and their tents and bags, and they're, like, scrambling and freaking out, and we have our snorkel masks, and... <laughs> bikes and we're like super prepared and we're like oh my gosh so we race back into the to the fire and we start stacking people's things and helping people get out of their tents and anyway so we we kind of helped push to help all these people uh find their way and and i was telling this story once in preparation for this night and um and i i was relating how ridiculous this scene was of people with their baggy clothes and dreadlocks and all these things. And, and they said, well, yeah, but you guys probably look pretty ridiculous too, right? <laughs> and so started thinking about it from their perspective. Like, who the hell are these guys in probably like spandex pants and, you know, coming to, to grab our, our things and, and help us out. But anyway, we ended up making it to this little strip of land between the ocean and a little lake. And we spent the rest of the night probably in a drum circle and it, it all worked out. Um, so that, we never really got to feel the rainbow gathering, but it was definitely an interesting night uh, from, our, from our travels. Um, the last thing I wanna say is that that story is dedicated uh, to our good friend, Andrew, who was the bump in the night, who's um, no longer with us. Uh, we love you, Andrew, and uh, thanks.
1: Our next storyteller is a a former storyboard member, uh, Melissa Griffiths. Uh, Melissa has lived in Juneau long enough to be inserted into memories from before her time, but no, she did not go to high school with you (laughs) or your kid, for that matter. She's probably best known for helping others tell stories as a former reporter and a former storyboard member, but more recently, she's known as the cake lady for her sweet side hustle, painting your cats and dogs in buttercream or whatever else uh, you dream up. Uh, Since baking got monetized, her new hobby is uh, mushroom foraging. Uh, She could talk for way more than seven minutes about mushrooms. Uh, Please don't tempt her, but do welcome Melissa to the stage. Thank you.
5: I know I'm probably not supposed to give a disclaimer, but um, I was the last person to sign up and I immediately regretted it. So uh, pardon me while I probably fumble through this. Um, Do you remember the weather on June 18th, 2022? (laughs) Um, So I had just dropped off a cake and um, packed the perfect picnic Uh, I was at the Arboretum with my boyfriend. It was a sunny day in Juneau, a beautiful sunny day in Juneau, but it was raining, torrential monsoon rains in the deserts of Arizona, where my youngest sister was behind the wheel of a car on her first big independent road trip. She and a friend had driven all the way down to Corpus Christi, Texas, and seen all the sights along the way. They were on their way back to Oregon and about to make a stop in Las Vegas to see my other sister, Megan, Um, but she wouldn't make it. Somewhere outside of Tucson, Arizona, there was monsoon rains. Somewhere outside of Tucson, there was a truck trailer parked along the side of the highway. I didn't cry when I was practicing this, but um, somewhere outside of Tucson, Arizona, the wheels would lose traction. And somewhere outside of Tucson, my sister died. She was just 23 years old. I didn't answer the phone when my mom called. It was sunny in Juneau. Um, But when my sister called, just a couple moments later, I picked up and she told me to go home and call my mom. I didn't even rush then. I stopped and admired some poppies, my favorite flower, and commented on their beautiful but short-lived blooms. Sometimes real life is way more cliched than I would ever dare to be. Um, so Zach, you know, took the driver's seat on the way home um, at this point. I didn't know what was, not, what was wrong, but I, with that ominous instruction to, you know, go home and call my mom, I knew something was up. But at this point, I was worried about something else. I thought, okay, somebody died, but it was probably somebody who had lived a long and full life. You know, somebody old. <sighs> Sorry to old people out there. Um I hope you keep living. Um Or maybe it was, you know, somebody who had really squandered their existence, you know, one of those people who was really doing it all wrong and killing their liver and that's also directed at a very specific person. And I was worried at that point that like I wasn't going to be as sad as I was supposed to be. That was my big worry. So when my mom told me the news, that Maddie didn't make it. I just didn't know what to do. Zach got me home and consoled me as best he could, but I really needed to be with family. So um, I apologetically told my friend Jess that sorry I couldn't help her move that week. And um, she insisted on booking me a ticket with her miles, and getting me out the next day. So I was off, Zach took me to the airport and on that really early awful flight because things weren't bad enough, you know? And uh, that afternoon I arrived in Las Vegas, sunny Las Vegas. And you know, I was with my sisters, their partners, my mom came, um, my cousin and my sister's friend who survived the crash. And the nine of us all existed in this uh, tiny grief-filled bubble for about two weeks. And, you know, we told stories and we cried and we imagined what little things we could do that would have made things different. We watched a lot of Spongebob (laughs) and we floated in the pool and we cried at a bowling alley over a shrine that we built. You know, there may be or there may not be a right way to grieve, but we also told a lot of jokes, dark, morbid jokes. And one of the premises was that Maddie wasn't really gone. She was haunting us. And one of those nights that we were all together, we had all gone to bed and tried to sleep. But in the middle of the night, we just heard this loud crash and shattering glass. And we would discover that a mirror had fallen unprovoked from its seemingly secure place on the wall. And of course, it was Maddie. (laughs) So we're not particularly religious people, nor are we superstitious. I would say our brand of spirituality is best described by the Lion King song, The Circle of Life, whether or not my mom can stomach the concept of antelope eating grass that was on a cellular level once her daughter. Um, So the, the important part of this, though, is that we're looking What we need is to feel like Maddie is with us everywhere. And oftentimes what that looks like is, you know, sunbeams and rainbows and nature being so heartbreakingly beautiful that you're moved to this transcendent plane of universal connection. Or sometimes it's haunting through minor inconvenience like losing your car keys in a mushroom patch in North Douglas or falling mirrors. I guess we'll take our connections where we can get it. I love you, Maddie, and please don't make me trip on my way off the stage.
3: Our next storyteller and our last storyteller before intermission. Is James Williams many people who come to Juneau say there are only two ways to get here by plane or boat that means entry is at the airport or up Stevens Passage or Lynn Canal by boat yes I'm speaking to James Williams yes this is him um, Jim got here not by boat not by plane but through the third canal which is the birth canal. (laughs) I like that too, very clever. Let's hear it for James, Great joke, that's funny. Matt, Matt, that's funny, right? You know funny, Matt. He was born canary, the site of Greens Creek Mine or fishing with his grandfather. As an adult, he worked for the state of Alaska in building maintenance and later with the Alaska Marine Highway System, maintaining ferry terminals, and docks from Catla to Homer. He retired in 2000. Please welcome James.
6: Sorry about that interruption. My uh, life alert went off. And <laughs> I'm not ready yet. <laughs> How embarrassing. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't believe it. (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, my story begins in uh, Great Britain in 1888. There was a ship, the SS Islander, that was built in Liverpool, England, and its sole purpose was to deliver gold from Skagway to Vancouver, Vancouver, uh, BC. It was a pretty luxurious uh, ship at the time. It was 240 feet long, about 40 feet wide. It was uh, 1901, I think, uh, mid-August, when it left Juneau about one thirty in the morning or so, it got past uh, South South Island there, and it hit an iceberg, and it went down pretty fast. Uh, I think they lost maybe fifty people, uh, but one one man managed to make his way back to Treadwell Mine to let people know what uh, what had happened. So. I guess my feet hit the deck on my grandpa's fishing boat when I was a toddler. It was just a small boat. The the boat was uh, as wide as these steps here, so uh, anyway, we'd fish from Seymour Canal, South Admiralty, to uh, Burners Bay. Uh, Every time we'd... uh, troll past greens greens cove over on admiralty i'd, I'd look at uh, the remains of the ship that was towed up onto the beach i think it was in the 1920s they uh, they tried to raise it because there was a lot of gold on board and they broke it in half so they beached uh, the part that they did did get and of course the gold is didn't come up with uh, the part they grabbed. <laughs> so I'd ask uh, my grandpa, I'd say, "Grandpa, let's go to let's go to the beach. I want to look at that." And I'd bug him and bug him, and he'd never never take me to the beach. Then uh, I think it was in about f- 1957, my aunt Tilly and her husband moved up here and we took him out fishing and we trolled by Green's Cove and he saw the remains of the ship there and man, he he said, I gotta see that and he talked my grandpa into going to the beach and I went, oh, finally I get to go. So I, I got over as far as I could, but the, I don't know if you're familiar with the type of real black sticky mud that a minus tide has in some place. Well, physically, I could not make it to that to the remains. So I went back to the boat, uh, and then we took off. And after that, my new object to bug my grandpa about was, let's anchor up there and spend the night, you know, because he talked about uh, people saying that they could hear music playing People talking, having a good time, you know, good party, and uh, they'd say that it was the people on on the, the island there. So when he told me that, I said, "Yeah, we gotta. Can we go go anchor up?" And so finally, when I was about nine, maybe ten years old, he agreed. Uh, It was a nice, nice evening. You know, we watched the sun go down and uh, got things cleaned up, and we went to sleep. And uh, shortly uh, after midnight, there was a loud splash and a thud on the side of our boat, and whatever it was made the boat list way over. And then something walked from the stern all the way to the bow, and it was quiet. And all I could hear was the quiet lapping of the water against the hull, and then The steps went from the bow all the way back to the stern again. And then there was another big splash. My granddad, uh, he must've, my eyes must've been (laughs) that big because when he looked over at me, he started laughing. (laughs) And I was scared, I was scared as hell. (laughs) But, you know, anyway, uh, to this day, to this day, and I'm 72 years old, I've never been able to fully s- fall asleep on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if I'd hear that quiet lapping of the water against the hull. I'm, I'm ready to... <laughs> well, that's it. <laughs>
0: Listening to Juno's live storytelling event, Mudrooms, on KTOO Juno 104.3 FM. These stories were told on October 11, 2022, on the theme "Things that go bump in the night." Do you want to be on the Mudroom stage? Visit us at mudrooms.org or at Juno Mudrooms on Facebook and Instagram to learn more.
1: Uh, bring up our our next speaker. Uh, Leslie Ishii is Yonsei, fourth-generation Japanese-American, and serves as the Artistic Director of Perseverance Theater. She's worked throughout the U.S. in theater, film, and television industries. Uh, Leslie has had the honor of working with many legacy theaters of color throughout the U.S., Penumbra Theater Company, Native Voices, East-West Players, and El Teatro Campesino. Leslie works on a number of national boards in the U.S. theater sector advocating for the sustainability of theater. Let's welcome Leslie Ishii to the stage.
7: Thank you, everybody. It's my first time. Um, (laughs) This is a story um, about my first professional theater job after I graduated from the American Conservatory Theater. It's the first time I've ever shared it in public. So there we were in a van, driving from Albuquerque to Santa Fe in New Mexico, and we had just closed the run of our show, I Don't Have to Show You No Stinking Badges, by Luis Valdez, the founder and artistic director of the Legacy Theater, El Teatro Campesino. And this play was his response to the 1948 film, the treasure of Sierra Madre. So there we are going up the on-ramp, and we're getting up to speed. And my castmate, Demetrius, turns on his blinker. There we go. Oh, the mace is in the distance, the crimson sunset, the deep purples. Night is falling. And in the back seat is our stage manager and my two castmates mates, and one of them, their mother, who had just seen our closing show, and she was gushing about how proud she was of her son, and and all of us, our cast, and how much the audience loved the show. And then we noticed a car, a car, kind of just ease up and then ease back, and then suddenly we hear sirens, and 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 lights are flashing. I'm like, are we being pulled over? Demetrius, I saw you turn on your blinker. Were you going over the speed limit? He's like, no, no, I wasn't. Demetrius safely pulls us over to the side of the road, comes to a stop, and he reaches, wait, I, I don't have my wallet. I'm like, oh, Demetrius. Uh, okay, switch. He's like, "What?" I go, "You over me under. Switch now." And he goes, "Okay." I go, "Take off your shirt." I'll take off mine." He goes, "What the hell?" I go, "Give me your shirt. I give him mine. Put it on now." We put our He puts on mine, I put on his. Okay, everybody. Just take a deep breath. <laughs> the officer approaches the car. I roll down the window. Uh, "Good evening, officer." Um, Gosh, I put on my blinker. We weren't going over the speed limit. Is there a problem? This officer looks like he's in his early 30s. He's white. And he looks confused. <laughs> he leans in, looks at Demetrius and I. Then he leans in again, and he looks at the folks in the back seat. Give me your license. Okay, no problem, I'm just gonna reach in my purse. He takes the license, goes back to the car. We just wait in the van, holding our breath. Finally, he comes to the window. Get out of the van! And I think, wait, is that protocol, is that legal? And then I suddenly remember that the artists that we met up in Santa Fe warned us that brown people have been profiled, pulled out of the cars, ordered to the ground on the shoulder, and held at gunpoint. And I'm thinking, with the exception of our white stage manager, we're all brown people. Oh, um, of, of course, officer. Okay, everyone, we're gonna get out of the van uh, the officer circling around to the to the shoulder. I said to the stage manager, "Grab your script." I said to my friend's mother, "Bring your playbill." Put your hands up, um, uh, officer. We're actors. We just closed the show. I don't have to show you no stinking badges. <laughs> Uh, And our stage manager, right there, he has the script. And this is my friend's mom, she saw the closing show and she's got the playbill, you can read all about us, our bios are in there. (laughs) He takes the items, he goes back to the car. Oh. Oh, now it's pitch black, except for the glaring lights from the car, the headlights, oh. And it's just, night has fallen we're getting tired. I could swear it's been like at least 30 or 40 minutes. Okay, everyone, just try to hang in there. I know your arms are tired, but just keep breathing. We'll get through this and don't make any sudden moves. Oh, please God. Finally, the officer comes back. You can go. He throws the playbill and the script and my license on the ground at us. He goes back to his car and pulls out. Uh, okay. We pick up our things. I pick up my license. We get in the van, and we drive up the road in silence. I pull us into a Denny's, and we order food to calm our nerves. Oh, Demetrius we have to find your wallet. We go out to the van. We're looking. We're turning over everything. No wallet. It's got to be here somewhere. We go to the back. We search through all our bags. The props, the costumes, everything. No wallet. I said okay we can find this. We just have to. Look as a kid I used to channel things and I could find things when my brother lost his pacifier, his blanket. We can do this. So we go in the car, we're scouring through, we're looking through everything, tearing through, and wedged between the seat and the console. (gasps) Oh, Demetrius! We hug, we immediately start crying. We go back into the Denny's. He holds up his license and his wallet, and our entire group comes and we form a group hug. We're crying, we're cheering. We're so relieved. We sit back down. We finish our meals. And we each order a hot fudge sundae for dessert. There were a few beers in there, too. That was our closing night in Mexico City.
3: Up next is Bruce Denton. After the eighth running of the Iditarod, Bruce became the 146th musher to receive the Iditarod finisher's belt buckle, which is awarded in Nome to mushers the first time they complete the race. He ran again each of the next three years, finishing 10th in the 10th Iditarod. He and his wife Sharon live in bush cabins with their very young family, All four of the winters where when she wasn't tending to their children, Sharon journaled and helped him train and prepare for each race. They have been sharing stories of their experiences to anyone who wants to listen ever since. We're ready to listen. Bruce, come on up.
8: I can't begin to describe the incredible feeling of running a dog team in the middle of the winter. Under starlight skies, or the aurora borealis, or a full moon with with enough light for the snow to reflect and make colors come vivid, I was running my second Iditarod, and came into the uh, the Chachtulic checkpoint along with another musher. We had both planned on staying for a fair bit of time, and decided that we would leave the t- the Chaktulik checkpoint together to go to the Koyak checkpoint, 58 miles up the trail across the sea ice of Norton Bay. This is a stretch of trail that was particularly treacherous and unprotected, and is known for its incredible winter storms and conditions. It's the area where Libby Riddles, four years later, braved the storm that no one else would and went on to become the first female to win the Iditarod. So after resting our resting and feeding our teams, John and I were booting and hooking up our dogs to take off. And I did realized that one of my dogs had a swollen foot and I was going to need to drop him. It looked like he was going to have to finish the race by riding the Iditarod Air Force to Nome. I told John not to wait for me to go ahead, and I would proceed with dropping my dog and dealing with the the uh, drop dog paperwork, which I did. And then had <coughs> I went gave gave Sundance a pat, told him I'd see him in Nome, and headed back to my team to hook them up and get ready to go. The dogs were doing really well and felt great. We got them all hooked up, and it had been a little less than an hour since we, you know, had our aborted attempt at leaving earlier. The trail was perfect. The weather was perfect. It was clear. It was cold. It was calm. The trail was hard packed. And on either side of the hard packed trail, there was about six inches of softer snow with a hard crust on top of it. I was running a toboggan sled, which has runners that stick down a couple inches below a plastic, continuous plastic bottom. So as long as the sled was on the hard-packed trail. It was just running on the runners. But if the sled went off the trail, it would ride up on the plastic and make a bunch of noise as it crushed through the, the icy layer on top of the snow. I was in a situation not unlike now. I was pretty much sleep deprived and um, decided that I should take a nap. While the dogs were running along, the weather was perfect, and I thought, "What the heck? This is a, the perfect opportunity." I was—I'm kind of an optimist and a um, risk taker by by nature, and as you can see, um, and uh, I was so so tired that it, I really couldn't make a good a good you know a good decision based on any mental facilities or faculties. So I hopped on the sled, took off, and decided time to take a nap. I climbed over the driving bow on my sled, slid into the sled bag, and fell asleep. Much later I woke up as the sled veered off the trail into the crunchy, icy snow that woke me up. I Kind of in a quick motion, threw open the sled bag, sat up, put my headlamp on, and said, Whoa, to my dogs, who turned around and looked at me and said, Looked at me like, What's up, boss? So I was really surprised as I looked around and realized that what had happened is that we had caught up with John and were in the process of passing him. <laughs> so, so I uh, looked over at John without getting out of my sled and I said, Oh, hi, John. And I looked forward to my dogs, and I said, on by. So the dogs proceeded to pass on, pass John up and drop back on the trail and carry on. Feeling really proud of my dogs as we trotted further and further away from John, I closed my sled bag flaps, turned off my light, and went back to sleep. When, when John arrived in Koyak, I didn't think to ask him, but I've wondered ever since, what he would have done had I not fallen asleep. And he was driving along in a musherless, apparently musherless dog team (laughs) passed him in the middle of the night, in the dark, bumped over the rough part of the trail next to his sled, and then bumped back onto the trail into the darkness like a headless horseman. I figure that I got more sleep on that trail than John and I had over the previous three days combined. And I never slept on my, on my sled while it was underway the rest of my Iditarod career. But I had a number of dogs that did many times. Thank you.
1: Uh, our final storyteller for the evening is uh, Summer Custer. Uh, when Summer was 19, she lived in Kingston, Jamaica, studying gender and development and dance hall reggae culture. Now is a freelance writer. She writes about her 15 years living in Latin America and Caribbean cultures and teaches Spanish to middle school students who often ask her to rap for them apparently. Uh, Born and raised in Juneau, she lives in the world's most beautiful capital city with her husband and two kids who, when asked if they liked her rapping, I think this is a direct quote, replied, eh. (laughs) Uh, Though her hip-hop days are behind her, uh, she'll occasionally bust a rhyme while singing songs on her guitar just to make sure people are paying attention. Welcome, Summer.
9: In Kingston, Jamaica, reggae music is everywhere. Now, in 1998, I'm not talking about Bob Marley. In 1998, it was dancehall reggae. On the street, on the buses, people waiting for the bus, on the street, dancing. Reggae music, dancehall reggae, blasting everywhere. And if you don't know what dancehall reggae sounds like, it's heavy bass with rhythm, and it's aggressive, and it's kind of violent sounding, which is completely appropriate for because in 1998, Kingston, Jamaica had the highest rate of homicide of any city in the Americas. So when I'm not studying at the University of West Indies, I'm in my neighborhood and I would go for walks and there's people hanging out on the corners and This one time I walk by and I see this guy who kind of catches my attention because he's pretty handsome. He's got these amazing cornrows with the little hair sticking up and his eyebrows are like shaved into stripes and he's got these shiny silver sunglasses and a matching shiny silver jersey and he's tall and he's handsome and this big beautiful white smile against his black skin and I'm I think I might have lingered a little bit because he was like, Wagwan. And I was like, Oh, nothing. I'm just going for a walk. And he said, Uh huh. You keep walking. <laughs> and that kind of took me by to surprise because up to that point, Jamaican guys had been a little more forward and like, come here as opposed to go away. So, I kind of liked that he pushed me along. Um, it made me feel safe. So a couple of days later, I'm like, "Huh, oh, I wonder if I'll see that guy again. So maybe I'll just like kind of walk around that corner and sure enough, there he was. So we struck up a conversation, and I find out that his uh, he's a dancehall reggae rapper, and his name he calls himself Ninja Two Thousand Ninja Two Grand, um, which sounded really futuristic for 1998. And um, he takes me into his dance hall reggae world. So I'm going to recording studios. I meet UB40, I meet Third World, I meet some dance hall reggae stars like Sprague Benz and Innocent Crew. I'm sure you've heard of all of them. And he takes me to stage shows where I watch him perform on the stage. And he even takes me into like the deep Jamaican ghetto, which they call the Pens. He takes me to Grand's Pen, which is such a gnarly, dangerous, neighborhood that even the police won't go in there. So, I wear something really conservative and I hang out, I hide behind the DJ set. And what I see just blows my mind. It's a conga line of men and women, like 30 of them, pressed up against each other wearing the most amazing bashy outfits, like bright colors and their hairstyles, like I didn't even know hair could do that, and they're they're whining, which is um I'm not gonna demonstrate because I can't, but it's uh, like very sexual gyrations, right? Some women are like kind of upside down. I mean, and then there's th- three story speakers. Women are climbing up the speakers and whining on those. Okay, so we start hanging out a little more. Everyone around me is speaking Jamaican patois, which is like. Hardcore lingo, and it sounds really cool, and I don't even realize that I'm doing it But all of a sudden I'm speaking patois and I'm surrounded by so much music that I start to write my own lyrics I've always been a songwriter and and I write some lyrics and I'm like hey ninja. I wrote some lyrics you want to hear them and he's like yeah bring it so because I have like zero pride, I'm going to demonstrate for y'all what it sound, what these sounded like. <laughs> First song I wrote, okay, so don't judge me too hard. Little Red Ed Gal from Alaska, ate to the mother love of K and the salmon halibut. It's what we smoke at. No, it not the crack. Gotta get back. Jamaica Air, take me where I bust the prong and where to mama backside a burn up. I'm, I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> You're welcome.
8: Thank <laughs> you. Yeah.
9: So I was like, pretty bad, huh? And he goes, next time I put you on stage with me. <laughs> that time never came, gratefully, no. But um, actually, it kind of did in some ways because when I moved back to Bellingham in college and stuff, I, um, I kept rapping. And I even performed at some house parties, this dance hall reggae that no one had ever heard of yet. And um, believe it or not, people actually liked it. And maybe it's just because they were really drunk. I don't know. And they were giving me like positive feedback, like keep doing it. So I kept writing lyrics and I started moving in, like segueing into hip hop. Um, I started getting involved in the hip hop scene. hung out with a rapper with Wu-Tang Clan, Um, started doing some recording and thinking maybe there's an opportunity to be the first white female rapper because there were none. Like, maybe I should pursue this. I wrote a letter to Def Jam, never mailed it, started to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, I'm gonna maybe pursue this. So I actually moved to New York City for my senior thesis and lived in a Caribbean neighborhood. And New York City, by the way, is the motherland of hip hop and it was created by a Jamaican American, DJ Kool Herc in the Bronx. And um, I'm surrounded by hip hop and rap and all my friends are Caribbean and like Jamaican and stuff. And when I'm taking the train to go to Hunter College where I was studying the music industry among other things, I could see the big tall buildings, the projects. And I would imagine all the up and coming rappers in those projects. And that's when it dawned on me that those up and coming rappers were the ones that should be rapping, not this girl. Because they really had something to say. And hip hop didn't belong to me. It wasn't mine. And I felt that when I was in the heart of hip hop country. Like, in Bellingham it was one thing, but here, so I stopped rapping, but 23 years later, <laughs> I can still spit a lyric, <laughs> possibly badly. <laughs> Shorty say, where's it happenin? In your mind, tie time, you be dropping in, walkin' with the spot you in, spot you spinning to be stoppin' in my copper brim, fitting in like Q-tip. Don't flip a cow, like little sister, spit a spiel again. Still Mr. Bouncer wanna diss her, mistake me for a strip, but he not let me in. Saying something about my front, I'm a simpleton. Simple trick and some pussle wanna dick me in. Disrespecting on my yin, I heat like engine, wanna burn you with my she wisdom. That's it, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were told live on October 11th, 2022 at kunik Northern Light United Church. The theme was things that go bump in the night. For the first time, proceeds went to mudrooms. Live music was performed by Tom Loker. Thanks to KTOO for bringing mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us November 8th for our next event on the theme Uncharted Territory. Learn more on our website, mudrooms.org, or on Facebook and Instagram at Juno Mudrooms. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Jeffrey Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, Rich Moniak, and Jane Hale. I'm Crystal Briette. On the behalf of Mudrooms, Happy Halloween!